Hello, space travelers. This is Eccentrica Golumbitz, and you are listening to Digital Watches, our pretty neat idea, with your hosts, Jeff and Brian, the best bangs since the big one. Hi there, this is Jeff. I'm with my friend Brian, and we'll be talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in all its forms. But before we do that, let's listen to a message from one of our proud sponsors. Hello, I am Dr. Julie Lesnick, nutritional anthropologist and future of food researcher. Are you a masochist on a diet? Well, then the Nutramat is for you. When you press the drink button, it makes an instant but highly detailed examination of your taste buds a spectroscopic analysis of your metabolism, and then sends tiny experimental signals down the neural pathways to the taste centers of your brain to see what is likely to go down well. However, no one knows quite why it does this, because it will invariably deliver a cupful of liquid that is almost, but not quite, entirely unlike tea. The Nutramatic Drink Dispenser is another fine product from the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation. Share and enjoy. Hey, Brian. How are you today? I'm doing great, Jeff. How about yourself? I feel out of order. Out of order? (laughs) When did that happen? (laughs) Well, not like that I'm not in working order, but like this episode, it has most of the story of the radio series, but someone put them in a different order. Yes, that's true. Yeah, so according to the record album I have, this one goes episodes... 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 5, 6. So I guess it's really not that out of order, but to me it seemed way more out of order than this was. Yes, I can see that. It's a challenge. <laughs> it is a challenge. But I want to start this episode with something important that I noticed while doing this podcast that the mainstream scientists are keeping from us. Does that sound conspiracy theory enough? Oh, I'm hoping it's really deep. (laughs) It is. In that little piece that talks about the digital watches, it mentions the little blue-green planet orbiting the Mm -hmm. unregarded yellow sun. Yes. Well, in chronological order, the radio show says 90 million miles. Mm -hmm. The first editions of the book say 92 million miles. And the current editions of the book say 98 million miles. The Earth has broken orbit and is drifting away from the sun at an alarming rate. (laughs) But there is a bright side. (laughs) To the sun? There's a bright side to the sun, right? (laughs) There's a bright side to the sun. Since the planet will be getting colder the farther it moves away from the sun... We don't need to worry about cutting down on reducing greenhouse gases because we're going to need all of them to keep the planet warm. Okay. All right. And also, (laughs) NASA can just wait a bit until we're much closer to Mars before they launch that mission. (laughs) Oh, gosh. All right. Well, let's talk about the restaurant at the end of the universe. All right. Let's. Part one. The whole group is on the heart of gold, and Zaphod is hungry. 
Zaphod cannot work out the improbability factor needed to get to the restaurant at the end of the universe. The Vogons, on the orders of Gag Halfront, are attacking the Heart of Gold to eliminate the last two remaining humans. Eddie, the shipboard computer circuits, are preoccupied trying to make tea. So a seance is held. In a flash of light, the spirit of Zaphod's great-grandfather saves ship. Zaphod and Marvin are missing, and Ford, Arthur, and Trillian are stranded on a disabled heart of gold. While searching for Zaphod and Marvin, they discover a setting with three servings of very good tea. Zaphod and Marvin turn up at the corporate headquarters of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Zaphod has an unexplained hunk of metal in his pocket. Without knowing why, Zaphod is compelled to see a man named Zarniwoop. A friend named Rusta helps Zaphod to get to Zarniwoop's office where an artificial universe has been created. Zaphod sends Marvin to stop a giant frog star battle tank coming to get him. Marvin succeeds by outwitting it. Using force beams, the frog star fighters capture Zaphod by taking half of the building. The book starts out with the same opening passage as secondary phase. Mm-hmm. But this time, I heard it, the audio version, read by the author. Yes. But in my opinion, Peter Jones, who narrated the radio series, did it better. Well, yes, I, I think he did do a terrific job. But I wouldn't say that I have enough experience to say which one would be better. I enjoyed the the Peter Jones version better. I do like, though, that he eliminated that third part of the joke that I felt spoiled it. Third part? Yes, about the whole thing about the universe changing into something more unexplainable was just right. made up by the editors of The Hitchhiker's Guide. That whole part he eliminated mm-hmm. from the books. Right, right. When we ended the last book, it ends very abruptly with Zaphod saying, let's all go get something to eat at the restaurant at the end of the universe. And in my mind, it was never referred to again. But I'm actually completely wrong because the story starts out with the heart of gold just merrily on its way. Mm -hmm. And Zaphod is trying to get something to eat. And that plays out through most of the book. That's correct. It does. So they're being followed by Vogons, specifically prosthetic Vogon Jelts. And he has been Mm -hmm. charged with destroying the heart of gold to get rid of the last two remaining humans from Earth. If you remember, I was saying the whole thing with Trillian not being there bugged me in the radio series. Something else he fixed in the book. Yeah, it's not very obvious when it comes around that Trillian is is included in that in the book where it's not in the radio show. They start out again with this scene with the Nutramatic and Arthur and the T. I'm not sure it was a better change because rather than trying to figure out why Arthur wants tea, the computer got jammed up with how to make tea. And to me, that's not a computer jamming question like the why question is. And even though I'm not a fan of the change in the question, 
I do really like that the answer was the production of a silver tea set with the best tea Arthur ever had. Yes, that was very good. I do like that part of it. And and you are correct. I was a little concerned about why they had removed that concept from it. And it was just about making tea. Don't have an answer there. I wish I did, but I do think it leaks a little bit. <laughs> oh, okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> The Vogons are there to kill the heart of gold. They've got the computer jammed. They can't go anywhere. And Ford, with nothing else to do, decided to count down the last minutes of their lives. And it drove Zaphod crazy. And one of the my favorite lines in the whole book, this this here, this is my first of my favorite jokes. <laughs> <laughs> is Zaphod tells him to stop counting, and he said, I will. In three minutes and 35 seconds. (laughs) Oh, yeah, but Ford also has that great line, uh, dying for a cup of tea, are we? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. I am still not a fan of holding a seance to get the answer to how to make tea. I still think it was kept in because he liked more than I do the joke of an accident with a time machine and a contraceptive. (laughs) <laughs> because that's how Zaphod explains how he's the first, even though he's the youngest. However, I did like how the great-grandfather called him the nothingth, and Zaphod likes to be considered the first. Right, exactly. And they do say, it, this is the interesting sequence, and I think there's a kind of an answer coming forward, but they do say that the subject of death was heavy in the air, and that's why they thought perhaps that was the motivation for Zaphod to hold the seance. Okay, yeah. It, it, and, and I, and I kind of like a couple of the things in the seance in the book that I didn't really notice so much in the radio show. But he's, <laughs> he's sitting there in the dark, and then all of a sudden he gets frustrated, flips the lights on, and there's his great-grandfather in the dark waiting. And he says, I thought you'd never turn the lights on. <laughs> that was great. That was great. They'd have sat there until they died without turning on the lights and seeing that he actually showed up. Right, and he does mention about his eyes being diamond cutters, like he's a stronger individual than uh, Zaphod is in that reference that they make. Or that he's really pretending to be. Exactly, exactly. So the seance works, the grandfather makes the tea for Arthur, and Zaphod and Marvin were transported to the offices of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. All right. Ford, Arthur, and Trillian were stuck on the Heart of Gold with all the systems down. Correct. Zaphod has a mysterious lump in his pocket. I like to think this was the inspiration for the Infocom text adventures game, the thing in your pocket that your mother gave you that you don't know what it is. (laughs) Well, there's also another reference right here to this particular, to the Infocom game. Which is that? I don't know if you caught on to it. I must not have. Well, at the end, there's a note stuck to uh, the console. um, Or no, a note stuck to the uh, tea set. And Arthur picks it up and reads it, and it says, wait. Oh, that's right. Yes, I did I did totally forget about that, but <laughs> waiting was a lot of that info. Yes, game. so I think it was a direct <laughs> reference to that game, you know, that, that one comment within that section of the book. I would agree. There was the scene when Zaphod was sitting in the lobby of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and... It mentioned that a couple of disheveled-looking hitchhikers were complaining. Mm -hmm. And that reminded me 
when we were discussing secondary phase, you mentioned that it said Zaphod was said to be hitchhiking the hard way. Right. And you wondered what that meant. Mm -hmm. You thought that maybe it was without the electronic thumb. Yes, yes. They never talked about Zaphod having any gadgets, but I think without the electronic thumb, it would be more than the hard way. Yes. It would be like impossible. (laughs) It would be impossible. But I have a better answer for you of what hitchhiking the hard way means. Okay. And it's it's very simple. Okay. And when you hear my answer, you're going to know that even (laughs) if I am not correct, I should be. Okay. (laughs) I'm ready. He was hitchhiking... Without a towel. (laughs) Oh, come on. Feel free to stand and applaud. (laughs) Well, I I, I can see that, but uh, I still think it had a lot more to do with uh, going from spaceship to spaceship without the (laughs) sub-ether. On to more gadgets. They introduced the concept of the peril-sensitive sunglasses, which I think is a brilliant Brilliant idea. Yes. So the Jujanta sunglasses, uh, peril-sensitive sunglasses, which turn black at the first sign of danger so that you will not have to see it coming. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So Zaphod is in the lobby of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and he doesn't know how he got there, but all of a sudden he knows that he has to go see this man named Zarniwoop. And he goes up to the receptionist and has this uncomfortable conversation with the receptionist. Mm -hmm. So just like in the radio series, it is almost the same conversation with the same jokes. He uses the same line, haven't you heard, I come in six packs. And that worked okay in the radio series. But in this book, they had the seance scene where we just learned that there are four of them. So it really bothered me that I just learned there are four Zaphod Beeblebroxes, and then he says he comes in six packs, and that should be edited to four packs. If they can make the Earth 98 million miles away from the sun, <laughs> they can change that to four packs. No, and, and all I want to say is a horse walks into a bar, and the bartender says, why the long face? <laughs> Yeah. So after Zaphod leaves to go up to the elevators to go meet Zarni Whoop, Marvin goes to the receptionist to tell the receptionist that he's looking for Zaphod. Then he says, he's right over there. And the receptionist is all upset that, why did you then even come over? I liked when Marvin asked the receptionist why anybody would be kind or helpful to a robot that didn't have any gratitude circuits. Right. And then he was asked if he had any gratitude circuits. And he said, I've never had an occasion to find out. <laughs> so poor Marvin, he starts out this book just as depressed as ever. Yep, you're right. That's the way his life is. Then we come to the scene where Zaphod sends Marvin to stop the battle robot. And I like the way this scene plays out better because they've described the Hitchhiker's building as two 30-story towers connected by a bridge halfway up. Mm -hmm. And Marvin meets the battle robot on the the bridge. bridge. So before, he was just in the office building. And having the battle robot shoot out a floor, 
he would have just fallen down one story, which right. really wouldn't have ended a battle robot. But because they were on the bridge 15 stories up, when the battle robot eventually shot out the floor, then like he knows immediately <laughs> what happened. Yeah. He falls 15 <laughs> stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That have taken care of him. Right, absolutely. I don't want to say I didn't like this scene or this joke or whatever, but it was a painful one. Arthur and Trillian, they go back to them on the Heart of Gold, and because everything is down, they're playing Scrabble on a rocking and swinging ship. And Arthur puts E-X-Q-U-I in front of S-I-T-E already on the board Mm -hmm. and used a triple word score. I've played a lot of losing games of Scrabble against Denise, and this felt way too familiar. <laughs> Making you nervous, is it? <laughs> it was. It was just like, oh, I've been that that person that had that laid out in front of them. Mm-hmm. I only have three letters I can play. I'm going to go sight. Mm-hmm. I-T-E after an S. <laughs> and then E-X-Q-U-I. Here you go. <laughs> They are taking Zaphod to the Frog Star, right? Uh, where he's going to be fed into the Total Perspective Vortex. Okay. But he had never heard of it. Right. And he's heard of everything fun, mm-hmm. so he assumed that it was not fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did like that line. And he's still obsessed at this point with with his hunger, you know, so he keeps asking if he's going to get fed on the way. <laughs> right. They're taking you to the Frog Star. Are they going to feed me? (laughs) They're going to feed you, all right, into the total perspective vortex. And so they do take Zaphod by actually taking one tower of the Hitchhiker's Guide building that he was in, uh, you know, because the bridge was cut. So it was real easy just to take one tower rather than both of them. Mm -hmm. And he is on his way to the Frog Star in the Hitchhiker's building. Part two. On the Frog Star, Rusta told Zaphod to leave Zarniwoop's office via the window. As he climbed down the exterior of the building, he met a giant talking bird and a disembodied voice, Gargravar. Gargravar escorts Zaphod to the total perspective vortex. It is a mind-destroying device that shows a person a glimpse of the unimaginable entirety of creation and their relation to it. The total perspective vortex told him he is the most important person in the universe. Zaphod found a derelict transstellar cruise liner in an abandoned spaceport. He meets Zarniwoop in the first class cabin. The unknown piece of metal in Zaphod's pocket is actually the heart of gold. Zarniwoop explains to Zaphod about the artificial universe and restores the heart of gold to its proper size. Zaphod rushes on board, reunites with his friends, and tells the computer to take them to the nearest place to eat. They end up at the restaurant at the end of the universe. Zaphod had met Rusta, who brought him to Zarniwoop's office and told him not to leave by the door. Right. So again, Zaphod leaves through the window And he's climbing down the building. And that's where he tells the bird to go away. That's where he meets the humming, disembodied voice. Follow the humming. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. 
And one thing I found funny, and I don't know what exactly it said, but what it told me was that climbing down the building, Zaphod was so miserable, it made Marvin seem cheerful. (laughs) (laughs) So there was some line Mm -hmm. that made Marvin seem like he was a happy Mm -hmm. guy because that's how miserable Zaphod was. Right. Here is where they kept half the story. The setting was kept, and the big birds and the shoe event horizon was Mm -hmm. kept, but without the archaeologist Lintillis. I am not sure the reason for telling the story of the history of that planet. I guess they wanted the Frogstar to be desolate, lonely place, but I think it could have been all that without all the bird and the shoe event horizon and all of that. For whatever reason, it didn't work in the book for me the way it did in the radio series. Yeah, I pretty much felt the same way. When you when they introduce the bird, he flops onto the building and uh, Zaphod turns to him and says, go away. <laughs> and he does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the bird just goes away. Yeah. <laughs> then he said, did that bird just talk to me? <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> it, it's a kind of a funny sequence, but it isn't really necessary. But it's kind of like, I guess when you're thinking about that stuff, everybody has these pearls of wisdom that they think they're gloriously excited about. So maybe he felt he had to keep some of that in the story because he was so excited about the way it played out in the radio show. That could be, and I've got a lot of things that I mentioned that he liked this joke so much in the radio series, he had to include it in the book, Mm -hmm. but it really doesn't work in the book the way it did, because it's not in the right place. Right, right. And again, it's hard for me, because I don't know whether it's the audio thing or what, but... I still put all of it back in, you know, <laughs> I'm reading the book. I'm noticing right. the deficit, right. the, the deficiencies, but my brain just keeps putting them back in place where they belong. <laughs> Telling the entire history of a culture without the archaeologists seems odd. Yes. Like you, it's like when the archaeologists were there, there was a reason mm-hmm. they were studying the planet and you were hearing about it. Now it was just, let me tell you a story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the parts of the story where they were talking about Gargravar, the disembodied voice, when he was talking about uh, he and his body and the uh, problems that the two of them were having together. He mentions that uh, his first name happens to be Pisspot. (laughs) (laughs) Pisspot Gargravar. And that in the divorce... (laughs) He's likely to lose his first name, you know, and I I just I got a kick out of that. And he said that one of his favorite things to do was sex and fishing (laughs) and how the two of them, the body and the mind argued about this. And they at one point tried to combine the two and had disastrous results. (laughs) (laughs) right and well there are books yeah exactly so uh i I did get a kick out of that and you know the fact that the body would retain custody of the forename i thought was a interesting little tidbit (laughs) yeah well he is the mind is always working and the body is just out having a good time that's right and that guy's i'm kind of jealous it does it does. And I I do like the line with Zaphod and Gargravar as, as Zaphod is first being introduced to the building in which the vortex is housed. And he sees this small rectangular metal space and he says, that doesn't look like the vortex. And Gargravar says, no, that's the elevator. That's the elevator. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Zaphod gets fed into the total perspective vortex, learns that he's a really great guy and the most important person in the universe, and then leaves. Mm -hmm. And here, here again, we get to learn that he's still hungry and all he wants to do is get something to eat. And in describing the total perspective vortex, they do talk that it is hooked up or plugged into a piece of uh, fairy cake or angel food cake or whatever type of cake it is, of which he immediately eats upon upon exiting. <laughs> that's correct. That's I how hungry that's he is. Yeah, it was. It was awesome. I, I love that. I still get a kick out of that whole sequence because, of course, that's where that motto that I had in my life for so long was in that part of the discussion. Right, right. I love where they talk about the fact that his wife kept yelling at him and kept telling him to have a sense of proportion, that uh, she kept telling him that 32 times a day. He'd hear, <laughs> have some sense of proportion, have some sense of proportion. So he invents this device, and in the end he realizes the one thing that you cannot do is have a sense of proportion. That's right. <laughs> Zaphod gets out of the vortex, and he's going to this abandoned, derelict spaceport. And here's something that he leaves up to the interpretation of the reader. So he comes across this ship that appears to be on. Everything else is dead and decayed, and he finds this one ship that seems to still be active. And it's been delayed. And Zaphod experienced the chaos and the horror of the reviving of the passengers of the delayed ship. Yes. And Zarni Whoop told him, it has not been a pleasant experience waiting for you. And Zaphod screamed, not pleasant for you? How do you think? And Zarni Whoop cut him off. Right. So do you think that Zaphod was going to mention the horror of the passengers, which would be unlike Zaphod, or the <laughs> things that he's been going through? Well, I associated that or I believe that he was just referring to the things he had to do to his own brain, the surgery that he went through, you know, the lopping off of right. of his memory, etc. So I'm thinking something along those lines. Which is hysterical because the first thing I thought the sentence would be is, how do you think these passengers feel? But <laughs> that totally would not be what Zaphod. Nope. For me, the way this all ends up is so much better than the radio series. Okay. He had not figured it out then, but he did a wonderful job fitting it into this version of the story. All right. Using the rules of his universe, it all works. When Zaphod is zapped to the offices, the Heart of Gold is miniaturized and put in his pocket. Yes. He leaves the office by the window remaining in the artificial universe. Right. That was the only way he could survive the total perspective vortex because the universe was made for him. If he mm -hmm. was in the real universe, his brains would have been destroyed. Correct. And in the radio series, it was figure out how the Heart of Gold got here, and it was never, ever alluded to. But Zaphod bringing it in his pocket was brilliant. Right. It's here that Zarniwoop says, I discovered the coordinates of the man who rules the universe. Okay. I found that an interesting line at this particular point. And then he goes in to describe how the, the coordinates are protected by the improbability field around the uh, location. Yes. I found that very interesting that it happens at this point. And I think it's part of what you were saying about the inconsistencies from the radio show that allow that 
line to get stuck in here and makes things work sequentially. Right, yes. But that then becomes a nice little thing when you reread the book. Because the first time you read it, it won't make any sense. And it's not going to stick in your memory of, oh, the the special coordinates. But then when you reread the book a second time, you'll get to that and you're like, oh, he talked about it here. I didn't even catch that. So those don't bother me too much. I do like enjoying those for rereading a book when they Mm -hmm. foreshadow something that totally went over your head. Right. But this part of the book, to me, became kind of a cheat. In the radio series... They got to the restaurant at the end of the universe because a hyperspatial field generator exploded because Shooty and Bang Bang were shooting at it. Uh, He could not find a way to get them to the restaurant without an explosion, so he just created one for no apparent reason. Right. (laughs) But I did like how Zarni walked onto the bridge only to see four puffs of smoke. So what exploded? I mean, did, did did Eddie just send them there and... They explode. I have no idea what the explosion was necessary for. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a good question. I wrote the same kind of notes in mine. I'm not really sure what the field is, of course, but it's like an implosion, really, because they're already physically at the correct space. So now it's just a matter of traveling to the correct time. Right. I don't know. We're, we're, we're looking at some strange event at that moment. But I think, the, like you said, I think it's just a an afterthought or a, a sequence of events that seem to fit in well. Right, right. So by getting to the restaurant at the end of the universe, they have to travel forward in time to just before the universe ends. So you're going forward and backward in time travel to get there. And here is my second favorite joke <laughs> that I'm going to come up with. Because... This is mind-twisting to me when you start thinking about it. And I guess it's because it would be absolutely true if time travel existed this way. The major problem with time travel is grammar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There is a book of grammar called The Time Traveler's Handbook of a Thousand and One Tense Formations. However... Most readers get as far as the future semi-conditionally modified sum inverted plagal past subjunctive intentional before giving up. And in fact, in later editions of the book, all the pages beyond this point have been left blank (laughs) to save on printing costs. (laughs) So nobody has ever read farther than this in the book, so they just refuse to print any of the other pages. Right, and that's the other favorite line there for me is they determined that future perfect was eliminated as a verb tense since it was discovered not to be. Not to be, yes. (laughs) That was also great. Part three. At the restaurant at the end of the universe, Zaphod gets an unexpected phone call from Marvin. He has been in the car park for a considerable number of millennia. The group goes down to the car park and has Marvin help them steal a sleek black ship. On the ship, Marvin reveals he can read the ultimate question in Arthur's brainwave patterns, but doesn't. The ship they steal is a sun-diving stunt ship heading for a sun. Marvin has to stay behind to use the partially operational emergency teleport system to save the other four. 
Ford and Arthur end up on another spaceship and encounter joggers. They discover they are on ship B of the Golga Frenchum Ark fleet. The Golga Frenchums convinced a useless third of their population that their planet was doomed. Everybody was going to be evacuated on one of three arcs. The thinkers in ship A, the workers in ship C, and everybody else in ship B. They sent ship B out first because it would be good for morale for the other ships to arrive on a planet where they could get a good haircut and had clean telephones. So if you remember, we did the radio series and the LP at the same time, and there were two different versions. Yes. The radio series had the quickly evolving species, and the LP introduced a character named Hot Black Desiato, who's the lead singer of a band called Disaster Area. The book goes with the Hot Black Desiato disaster area and he is here at the restaurant and he is dead for tax reasons yes. he's spending a year dead for tax reasons mm-hmm. that's correct <laughs> after ford meets hot black and has his non-conversation with him he goes back to the table and here's where they put in something i thought was absolutely wonderful mm-hmm. that wasn't on the lp or the radio series yes that's right the whole dish of the day right Tell us about the dish of the day. Well, they the waiter comes over and said, would you like to meet the meat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then a large dairy animal, this is as they describe it, comes over to the table and uh, it entices them to decide on which cuts of himself that uh, they would like to enjoy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very bizarre. I still laugh because I've I've heard this kind of thing before about uh, whether you're a vegetarian or, you know, whether omnivore or what, whatever you happen to enjoy uh, eating. And they talk about how they can't eat something with a face. <laughs> right. But, it, but it's freaky. If you remember, the, it's in the movie or the TV show, this character. It's in the TV show. And it is, it's disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. That, he, that he's speaking to us as he's describing, you know, cuts of himself that uh, would taste delicious. <laughs> okay, after Arthur gets thoroughly disgusted by the concept of the meat, <laughs> he decides right. that he wants a green salad and tells the uh, bovine animal, animal that that's what he wanted. And then there's a discussion about how vegetables don't enjoy being eaten either. (laughs) I thought it was very funny. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Arthur says that he doesn't want something that is asking him to eat it. And Zaphod said that's better than eating an animal that doesn't want to be eaten. That's correct. And Arthur says that's not the point. And he thinks about it and he realizes what Zaphod is saying makes perfect sense. However, (laughs) he's still horrified. It is absolutely true that if you've bred an animal that wants to be eaten, it's so much better, but it makes it worse somehow. <laughs> right. And that, and after the uh, the animal gets ready or takes the orders, because uh, I think it's Zaphod, is it? Or is it Ford who says, give us four rare steaks and hurry up? Oh, Zaphod. Uh, Zaphod. He turns to Arthur and says, oh, no problem. I'll, I'll just go off and kill myself. And don't worry about it. I'll be very humane. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the whole Dish of the Day sequence, I believe, is outstanding. 
And I really wish he would have thought of it for the album. But we didn't talk about this when we talked about the album because I tried to forget it. This whole segment where this would be is filled with a full minute of a song by the band Mr. Reg Nullify and his Cataclysmic Combo. And listening to that was about the most painful 60 seconds I ever experienced. <laughs> your legs, your arms, your eyes. Oh, it was horrible. Oh, do it again. Do it again. <laughs> no. That, that concludes the singing portion of our podcast. Oh, please. We want more. But I still love that at the end there when they're all digging into their stakes and Trillian, you know, takes a moment and before she takes a look again and she just digs right in and then Ford turns to Arthur and says, hey, Earthman, what's eating you? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. he Those little jabs. <laughs> oh, man. It's funny how Ford is always looking for an opportunity to dig at Arthur. Absolutely. Yes, Ford's representation here in this sequence of events where he's actually digging at Arthur all the time is something that apparently was intentional with Adams. I think he intended for that relationship to be different than it appears to be. We're led to believe that they're the best of friends, the best of buddies, and he wouldn't be able to live without him. As I I read in some additional material that I was looking at, that really isn't the relationship that Ford has with Arthur. Arthur's relationship with Ford is a friendship one, but Ford's relationship with Arthur was one of convenience. Right. What was mentioned in the supplemental material that I was reading is it's more in line with the way it's represented in the Infocom game because that game was directed, if you will, by Adams and his group. So he wanted it to be more representative. Okay. What was discussed was that Ford wasn't really intending to, to find Arthur and get him off the earth. He was only intending to go there and return his towel. Yes, yes. Before he left Earth. And then, based on what happened with Prosser, Ford got pissed off at Prosser and said, screw this, I'm taking Arthur with me. Right, right. <laughs> so he had no intention of saving Arthur. It just happened out of circumstance. Exactly. And and I, I think that's where all those jokes about monkey man and, the, you know, ape descended life form and all that stuff comes from is because he really doesn't have a lot of respect for the guy. He's just a friend, you know? Yes. So they still have the character Max, who's the MC of the universe ending show, and he's doing the group introductions. And like in the radio series and the LP, he introduced the group from Sirius B. And they all bark. Yes. And yes. in the radio series, there's no joke. And on the LP, mm-hmm. he says, we lay it all at your door, of course. And this is very poetic, but I think its intended meaning is lost. It is. In the book, though, he gets it right. Okay. This time he says, well, this is all your fault. You realize that. Right. So the universe is ending... And he's blaming it on the dog. (laughs) Okay. So, all right. (laughs) I know. I heard that in the book. Seriously. You you blame everything on the dog. (laughs) Blame it on the dog is a very common, common thing. So the universe is ending and he says, 
This is all oh, your fault now when he introduces I see. the dog star. <laughs> I had missed that. I mean, I, do I have to say no? This no, again? no. I, I, I think we're we're okay because I made a note about it. Why is it always the? Why is their fault? What did they do? And I didn't even associate the idea. Oh, they're the dog. You always blame it on the dog. <laughs> you always blame it on the dog, right? Uh, now you've you have educated me. See, look at that. Oh, gosh, that's funny. So in the radio series, Marvin and the Heart of Gold go the long way around to get to the restaurant at the end of the universe, which is eventually to be built on the planet Magrathea. Marvin got a job as a valet. Mm -hmm. I've wondered why the Heart of Gold was left all alone all that time. Yes. I like in this book that Zaphod basically just gives the ship to Zarniwu. In the radio series, the Heart of Gold has just been sitting on the planet Magrathea, and then the restaurant is built, and he happens to be there. It's like, but why has the Heart of Gold not been discovered in all that time? Here, the restaurant is on the Frog Star. It's not on Magrathea. Mm -hmm. And Zaphod just gave the ship to Zarniwu. Poof, he went to the restaurant. So I I liked in the book that the way this played out much more than I do in the radio show. I agree. It, it does seem more satisfying. I also like that the restaurant at the end of the universe has a cubicle-type machine that sobers you up. <laughs> yes. They mention in the radio series the penalties for operating a spacecraft under the influence, so that solves the issue. Right. It also removes the pre-programming of your return destination after the meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, you know, Ford was all drunk as you got to read. And Zaphod sticks him in this machine and boop, sober. Perfect. We need <laughs> one of those in every restaurant. Right. And I think they kind of played off that concept in the movie in a different way. But they use that same right. kind of sobering up concept. Yes. In the radio series, they never explained why the doomed stunt ship has a mostly working teleporter. I like that the book goes into more detail and kind of explains the whole how it comes about that a ship that's only meant to crash into the sun has a partially working teleporter. <laughs> yes. And I love the fact that it's an argument between the the staff that's building the ship and the uh, per- people that are paying for it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The contractors <laughs> and the people paying for it are... But it's on sale. <laughs> it absolutely killed me because I had, a, I had a conversation once with a gentleman who was a plumber. And he was talking about uh, some plumbing work that he had done in Atlantic City. He was responsible for working on the bathrooms. And the bathrooms in this particular hotel are chemical okay. for the men's rooms, the urinals. Right. And I don't really know the plumbing requirements for a chemical urinal. But the whole idea is that there's no water that's being used in the urinal. Right. But he was telling me that because of the union laws and regulations, every single urinal had to have water plumbed to it, even though water was never used. So all the pipes are there. (laughs) Just every pipe is there. Every, every seal is made and they don't even use them, but they had to be there because that was the law. Right. (laughs) Well, if they're ever going to upgrade to regular flush urinals, it'll be really easy. <laughs> well, I guess that's downgrade if you look at it from that perspective. <laughs> yeah. When the contractor and the accountant 
had a disagreement about the importance of the teleport, he uses the term knuckle sandwich. Yes. <laughs> that, when is the last time you have ever heard the term knuckle sandwich? It's been a long time, but I did make that note. I thought it was so funny. Coming from his left is a knuckle sandwich. <laughs> a knuckle sandwich, yes. Oh, my gosh. But then right after that, I just love when they go into the little ditty about teleporting. And they talk about how disquieting it is, you know, uncomfortable it is, and how there are songs that have been written about how difficult teleporting is. But I love this little one. They mm -hmm. said that, that after they repeat the long one with many, many verses, he said it. But there is a short little version that people really enjoy, and it's. Yeah. I'll try to repeat it here. It says, Okay. I teleported home one night with Ron and Sid and Meg. Ron stole Meggie's heart away, and I got Sidney's leg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they really stress the point that the group in the stunt ship is going back in time two million years farther than they should. Zaphod sees it on a control on the ship, but my favorite forced funny reference was Hot Black's bodyguard talking about the concert he was about to perform being 576,002 million years ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very good example of the literary device that can make reading a book the second time a unique experience. Mm -hmm. It is great when they can put in things that do not mean anything at all when you read the book the first time, but have meaning and importance the second time through. Right, and, and, and to that point, when I was listening to this particular chapter, I picked up on something that I hadn't really heard or read before. And they go down to the spaceport where all the ships are. And I, I think it's Ford who remarks to uh, Zaphod, well, what about the personal time teleports? Why don't we use those, he essentially is saying. And then Zaphod says, oh, right. that'll take me back to the heart of gold. And he doesn't want to go there. But I think it's interesting right. because here we are at the restaurant at the end of the universe. And what I guess he's implying is that there, again, is some kind of box or device you step into and it'll personally transport you back to your own time. But they don't choose to use that. Right. So they're talking about the disaster area concert and they've got the sun diving ship and they say it's going to cause earthquakes tidal waves, hurricanes, irreparable damage to the atmosphere, and all the usual things that environmentalists go on about. That made me laugh so hard when, <laughs> when they said that. But then he points out, when it was all said and done, Kekrafoon, the planet that was hosting the concert, became a paradise a year later. So it all worked out. Correct. And, and they do mention even then that when they looked back into... Uh, how this event occurred, they find vestiges of an improbability field. Yes, they do. <laughs> One of the things I've noticed in the second book that he wrote is that there are certain phrases or jokes that he seems to like so much that he'll actually repeat them. Mm -hmm. When he wrote his first book... He liked that whole part about stating the obvious so much that he wanted to make sure he included it in his first book because he doesn't know if he's going to get a second book. Right. 
when Ford and Arthur first got on board the Vogon ship, he does this whole thing about stating the obvious. Mm-hmm. But the stating the obvious came from the disaster area concert and the telepathic race and all of that. And now he's in the second book where that story is being told. Mm -hmm. Rather than leaving it out, he writes, It's worth repeating at this point the theories that Ford had come up with on his first encounter with the human beings. And he tells the whole story again. (laughs) It's like, I really like this joke. It doesn't belong in the first book, so I'm going to stick it in the first book. And now that I'm writing the second book, this is where it belongs, but I've already told the story. So I'm going to tell the story again, but I'm just going to start out with, it's worth repeating. (laughs) It's like you really love that joke so much that you had to make sure you got it in there again. You got it. (laughs) Of course, now is when Arthur and Four go into the teleporter individually and they get sent to the Golga Frensham ship yes many funny interactions with number one and number two uh mostly with number two i think uh but what i really Mm kind of liked about this sequence is the reference to joggers and i I think you made reference to it once in our last podcast something that is relevant to the time when this book was written uh jogging was the thing i mean it was just like way up there everybody was into the jogging and the jogging clothes and the sweatbands and all that kind of stuff so i kind of got a kick out of the pounding feet and then all of a sudden you hear he says joggers (laughs) (laughs) yeah of course eventually number two takes them up to the captain's area the main part of the ship one of the lines that I like. And you're talking about before where Adams' uh, sense of location and his sense of environment is really what tickles me. But it really tickles me when he says to him uh, that it's made from something that only appears to be white marble. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the bath. And uh, I just thought that was great. What I liked is that there's the part about the gin and tonics and how something like 85% of all known worlds in the galaxy have a drink with a name using the same phonetics. Mm-hmm. So it's pronounced gin and tonics, but spelled all kinds of different ways and has breaks, you know, gin and tonics and all kinds of other things. They also mentioned that all the drinks were named before any of the worlds made contact with any other worlds. So this fact has caused a lot of turmoil with academics. Right. That scenario is like watching any episode of Ancient Aliens. (laughs) Ancient Aliens is spawned from the theories put forth in the book Chariots of the Gods, written in 1968 by Eric Von Daniken. Yes. There was a movie of the same name that came out in the 70s. There was a very large following all through the 70s due to the book and the movie. And I am not sure if those are a real inspiration for this passage or not, but it would be fresh in people's minds in 1980 when this book was written. So where the book Chariots of the Gods looks at, there's a pyramid here and a pyramid here and a pyramid here, and they're all so old and none of them could have known about each other. He did the same thing. With gin and tonics. 
<laughs> yeah, and and what I think was funny, and and this is where the approach that I've been trying to take more recently in reviewing these things is what you miss in the listening is that when he first mentions it on the ship, the gin and tonics, it's actually spelled right J Y N M A N T O N N Y X. So, right. <laughs> but the author and the readers both say gin and tonics. So you're thinking that is right. The regular J I N T O N T O N I C, which I which yes. I absolutely love. But then they go into this whole thing about the structural linguistics and and how everybody's trying to decipher how this possibly happened. The young structural linguistics argue this point, and then the old structural linguistics just give up and drown their sorrows in whiskey and soda. But again, what's funny is when you look at the book, it's O-H-I-S-G-H-I-N-Z-O-D-A-H-S. Right. And looking at that, whiskey and soda. I would never have read myself whiskey and soda, but I thought that was hysterical. And you miss that joke if you listen, like you and I do. That it's it's the whiskey and soda thing, and that comes back, of course, because when they make a comment that later on, that after Arthur drinks his drink, he says it tastes like whiskey and soda. Yes. When when the spelling of the words is part of the joke, mm-hmm. you do lose it in the audio version. The other thing I was thinking about, and this is, again, it's just tangential to the story, but I just get the biggest kick out of number two, the character. And I know you've talked about it before because he's always barking his orders at them, you know. You want ice? <laughs> Lemon! Right. <laughs> Douglas Adams goes on to describe him as at, after he's being sort of dismissed by the captain, he says he goes back into the corner and practices his eye darting movements. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, back to the eyes, what I wrote down about eyes, and this was something that actually made me laugh out loud listening to mm-hmm. it while I was driving. Mm-hmm which I forgot totally about. Mm -hmm. So he talks about number two's eyes narrowing and becoming what are known in the shouting and killing people trade (laughs) as cold slits. (laughs) The idea, presumably, being to give your opponent the impression that you have lost your glasses or are having difficulty keeping awake. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I just love that. Now when I watch a Clint Eastwood movie, I just wonder if he lost his glasses. (laughs) And he goes on to describe how the bug bladder beast of Troll and his menacing multi-toothed grin was far more deadly than this straight line of someone's face. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Part four. The Golga Frenchum ship was designed to crash land. The people would survive, but it would cripple the ship beyond repair. Zaphod and Trillian end up back on the Heart of Gold with Zarniwoop. They are on their way to meet the man who rules the universe. The man who rules the universe is a solitary old man who lives with his cat. He is protected by an improbability field. After meeting with the man who rules the universe, Zaphod and Trillian leave in the heart of gold 
abandoning Zarni Whoop. Arthur and Ford discover Slarty Barkfast's signature in a glacier. They are on prehistoric earth and the native population is dying out. Using a scrabble board, Arthur is trying to help them evolve. He cannot imagine a world populated by the inept Golga Frenchums. Ford reminds him that he does not have to imagine it because he has already seen it. After one of the natives spelled out 42, Ford and Arthur came up with a method of extracting the question buried somewhere in Arthur's brain. Arthur pulled letters out of a bag and put them on the board. The question they got was, what do you get when you multiply six by nine? Ford and Arthur decided that they must make the most of their situation. They met a couple of girls and decided to go to a party. Arthur threw his copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy into a river, thinking he would not be wanting it anymore. So Ford and Arthur crash with the Golga Frenchens at their destination, and Zaphod and Trillian appear back on the Heart of Gold and go off to meet the man who rules the universe. I always thought it was interesting that Golga Frenchin is what they call the people with an N, but Golga Frenchum with an M is the name of the planet. I guess it would follow naming rules that we have here, but it just <laughs> seemed odd because I want to call them Golga Frenchums. Yep. <laughs> no, I, th- I, I noticed that as well. I thought it was interesting how he did that. So I want to start out with... Zaphod and Trillian going to meet the man who ruled the universe with Zarniwoop. Right. They talk more about elections and people getting to govern and presidents and those capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. All of that was in the first book, but he has a little part that I really like that he adds. And that starts out the major problem, one of the major problems, for there are several. One of the many major problems with governing people is that of whom you get to do it, or rather, of who manages to get people to let them do it to them. So I guess I've never really thought about when I elect somebody, I'm letting them do something to me, (laughs) but that really is exactly what you're doing. That's exactly right. So directly after that, and I do appreciate that line very, very much, he summarizes... And he summarizes the summary, and then he finally comes to the conclusion that the summary of the summary should be, people are a problem. <laughs> and I do like that summary yes. Yes, as they, they are, are summarized. <laughs> Correct. That just gets right down to the truth of it. <laughs> so what I liked in the book, as opposed to how the secondary phase ends. Secondary phase ends with Lintilla and Arthur getting on the Heart of Gold and leaving Ford, Zaphod, and Zarniwoop with the man who ruled the universe. But this time, Zarniwoop alone was the one that was abandoned at the shack. And then he got locked outside <laughs> in the rain. <laughs> yes, for at least a week, which I really do love. How would you mean at least a week? Because... It says just after Zarniwoop exits and starts trying to come back in, starts banging on the door, it's mentioned that the ruler of the universe takes that time to learn to talk to his table. And he spends the next week talking to his table. 
and ignoring what he thought he might be hearing noises outside. <laughs> so <laughs> Starting Whoop <laughs> okay. is locked outside for at least a week, yeah. and we have no idea how much longer. But just to back up a little tiny bit, I do wanted to talk about a couple of things that I really liked about the interaction between Zarniwoop mostly and the man who rules the universe. But I still love the the fact that he says that all evidence is circumstantial. Right. And then he, he goes on to say, how can I tell if the past is in a fiction designed to account for the discrepancy between my immediate physical sensations and my state of mind? Correct. And I just love that. That just blows me away. I just I just think that's an incredible statement. And I love the fact that this is Adams' understanding, or at least Adams' conception of the man who should rule the universe. Correct, correct. <laughs> but this one brings up a question, right in this area brings up a question that I don't think we've ever asked. Why does he have a lock on his door? <laughs> <laughs> no, not that. Okay. Um, he, he's described... He's describing his experience that's a little strange because he mentions the six black ships that he sees in the sky. Yes. um, How he commonly sees the six black ships. And he occasionally sees the large white one. Now, I originally assumed that that was the heart of gold, but it isn't, I don't think. And he also mentions seeing six green ones. Correct. And we're not ever given any information about what those green one, who the green ones are from, or even the white one necessarily. I have always thought that the white one was the only white one he has ever seen, which is the heart of gold. And he usually sees six black ships, but sometimes he sees six green ships. That's how I remembered it, as in other galaxies or whatever are coming to let him rule them. Whatever galaxy they are, the Milky Way, I guess it has to be because Earth was in it. Mm-hmm. He rules the universe or the galaxy. When when the six black ships come from our galaxy to go see him, they ask him questions and he rules it. And I think green ones come from a different galaxy or a different part of the universe. Sounds good to me. We don't know, but sounds good. I like that answer. I, I will say that the confusion can come up with the way it is written. I think I saw another ship in the sky today, a big white one. I've never seen a big white one. So in your listening and reading, you put, I think I saw another white ship in the sky today, but there is no white in there. It's just, he saw another ship, at least he thinks he did, but how could he know? Why isn't his past just... Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. A fiction. (laughs) So, all right. (laughs) But here I have a disconnect. The ruler of the universe seems to live in the now and in his universe. Correct. That is reinforced by his actions when he was alone with his cat. He did not change his behavior for the visitors, which would make sense that that's how he is. And I believe that's how he is. I think the first part of him talking to his cat and playing with the pencil wasn't just him getting into character after he saw the ship. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I bring this up because planning and scheming don't fit into that character trait. 
<laughs> right? Yeah, I knew I knew you were going to bring this up, but I, I but to your previous point, and I will I will say this: it does specifically say when he's playing with the pencil and the paper that his process of putting the paper on the pencil and then putting the pencil on the paper right. and putting the big end and the little end and then discovering he can make a mark with it. It says, as right. he has done every day. So it's like there's a reset in his mind or in his personality that allows him to reset a position and live through it again. There's a term, goldfish brain. Yes. Look, a castle. <laughs> and you swim around the bowl. Look, a castle. <laughs> that is how I expect him to be. Okay. He hears the ship starting up outside. but So he started talking louder so Zarniwoop couldn't hear it. And that's a lot of forethought and planning <laughs> and understanding sequence of events. <laughs> you know, it's like... He knew exactly what he was doing when he started to drown out the sound of the ship with his voice after he saw the other two leave that then he then denied were ever there. Right. And here's where, again, I'm conflating all these different things that we've listened to and talked about because it's not here in the book where they talk about some of his answers and some of the the responses that he gives to the other people that come to visit him. In the book, they don't really discuss that part of it. But in the other stories, no. the radio show, whatever, they talk a great deal more about that. So he is capable of much farther complex conversations and information. And he decides when and where he's going to use that capability. Okay. So, so I, I'm not... Like you say, I don't see him so much as a goldfish brain, although he chooses to use that when he can or will or wants to, but he has a capacity far beyond what we imagine. And it's not evident. There's no answer to it here, you know, but you're right. It does seem inconsistent in the book where he contrives to make this noise so that Zaphod and Trillian can escape so that Zarniwoop is stuck on the planet with him. Right, right. So now we want to talk about Ford and Arthur on prehistoric Earth that they eventually discover it is. And when I had to talk about the radio series, I didn't want to call them cavemen, but that's what they were called all the time. But I like Mm -hmm. in the book, even though that some say cavemen, Ford corrects them and asks them, do they live in caves? No, they live in huts. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then the term natives, then they alternately change from just using the term natives or ape men. Right. Well, yeah, and and it's funny because we know now that indigenous population dies off, I guess, as a result of the Golgofrinchians landing on the planet and providing extra diseases that they hadn't prepared for. Yes. (laughs) So the joke has always been that these are ape-descendant life forms on Earth, and now we know from this series of events that they are not, in fact, descended from apes. They're descended from the Golgofrinchians. But were the Golgofrinchians descended from apes? I don't know. That's a good question. See? But we don't know the answer to that. We can only assume. We don't. We we, we make it an assumption because of the evolution that we know existed on the planet of Earth, but we don't know what the Golgofrinchian evolution was. Of course, we know in Golgofrinchum from his discussion of the wandering poets that there were far more beautiful monsters and 
far more ravening princesses. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. <laughs> so it's a different uh, evolutionary cycle, I would say. <laughs> yes. I liked how the Babelfish was rendered mostly ineffective without a formal language yes. in the minds of the prehistoric population. That fit perfectly with your explanation and the other question. Ford was at least able to glean some vague ideas and concepts. Right. But they said that's from his experience being Correct. all over in all these other cultures. Mm -hmm. So that kept everybody at ease when he walked around the campsite or the the village site, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I thought was which was absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that sequence. Um, and I, I do like how they refer to it as, it seems like the Garden of Eden. It's just like the Garden of Eden. And then they have that discussion about eating the fruit. And, and Ford yes. keeps saying, after they've decided, Ford keeps telling Arthur, eat the fruit, eat the fruit. And then Arthur says, oh, it sounds like the Garden of Eden, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, I, I just got a kick out of that. Here's another place that I mentioned one of his favorite phrases. When you're listening to a book and reading a book, I think it's different things jump out at you. When I hear the same exact phraseology used, it stands out. I don't know if I notice it when I'm reading, but when I'm listening to it being read, I hear it. Mm -hmm. So when Ford and Arthur came upon that small village in the clearing that they eventually walked around, yes, he found a way to work in a phrase he must really like, which is, nothing continued to happen. <laughs> Do you remember that? I didn't, but it, it fits so well with, the, with uh, everything that we know about the Infocon game, you know? <laughs> right. In the first book, if you remember... When they were being shot at and then the cops died and mm -hmm. all the shooting stopped, yes. he uses, for a moment, nothing happened. Then, after a second or so, nothing continued to happen. <laughs> so he almost used that exact same phrase yes. walking around the campsite. And mm -hmm. it just jumped out at me. Yes. <laughs> I didn't catch the parallel, but I love when they do that. Another thing that they said about the fruits and the berries that I really liked is that when you are on a planet with fruits and berries, they're either going to save you or they're going to kill you. So you don't eat them until you're going to die anyway. <laughs> Sound logic to me. <laughs> yes. And then he said the secret is to surviving as a hitchhiker was to just eat junk food. Right. <laughs> they talked about... Ford's hunting technique. Yes, I, I love that sequence. That he learned from a couple of... Prolite monks. Yes, the Prolite monks. So Ford hunts by standing and smiling, lulls the animal close with a feeling of peace, and then he breaks its neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, it's it's just really funny because... Of course, he says at the end of that to Arthur, he says, it's all about generating the right smell. It's all pheromones. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so the book goes on to say that this mind control is so great that an extraordinary number of people sign on to be monks, but they leave the order just after they have finished their devotional training and acquired all these abilities 
and just before they take their final vows to stay locked in a small metal box for the rest of their lives. (laughs) (laughs) So they sign on, they learn all of this stuff. (laughs) And then they abandon the order. (laughs) Then they abandon the order as soon as they, they have all this skill. They finally decide that they're just going to leave the Golga Frinchums and go out and explore. And they have confirmation of their suspicion of where they are because Slardy Bartfast, being a little full of himself, because he didn't just sign the glacier in three feet high letters, but he made sure there was a giant portrait of his face in the ice. Okay, so... I'm not sure that it was Slarty who did that. I kind of approached that in a slightly different angle. Okay. I sort of thought that that was a reflection of the award in Perspex that he won. So it wasn't actually Slarty creating that in the in the fjords, but it was an honorarium created by the Magrathians to Slarty for what he had done in these creations. Okay, so it, rather than him just signing it and putting his face in it, it was because he won an award for these fjords. That's the award stuffed in the glacier. Yes, exactly. Okay, I can understand that. <laughs> But it's all about the interpretation, isn't it? It's all about the interpretation, yes. (laughs) So Ford and Arthur make their way back to the Gulga Frinchums, and we get to see how they are faring on this new planet. Basically, all they've done is form committees. I guess there's music, too, because there were bagpipes. I love that about the bagpipes, because that's so funny. He's talking about the captain and how the captain is listening to the bagpipes. And that he's really excited because at any moment, they'll stop. Right. (laughs) I just find it hysterical that the first instrument that they invent is the bagpipes. Well, I'm not even sure if they invented the bagpipes because you could go on to say that they, in fact, all bagpipers are a useless third. Oh, yes. Okay, they would be. (laughs) They're all part of that useless third. Yep, they are. (laughs) They don't have any other instruments, but they do have bagpipes. Yes. (laughs) So the captain's hideously ornate bath was lost in the swamp. Yes. And he says that they scooped out a hollow in a large rock to make a new one. Mm -hmm. That seems like a skill set the Golga Frinchums would not possess. Yeah, I wondered about that too, but then I remembered the kill-a-zap gun. (laughs) Oh, that's that's true. They could just blast it. (laughs) Start a war. It's a future military base. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, that's why they're blowing up trees on the other continent. So for those who had not listened to the radio series before reading the book, the reveal of the leaf being legal tender was really well done. Yes. I would believe that with their limited skills for making warm clothing, stuffing their tracksuits full of leaves for insulation against the coming winter was very feasible. (laughs) Yes, it made sense. And then discovering that they were just hoarding (laughs) leaves because they were legal tender Makes even more sense knowing Mm -hmm. who they are. I guess the new colony on the planet thought Golga Frinchum was a pretty silly name, so they renamed their colony Fintel Woodlewicks. (laughs) Yeah, that comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, they just they just something he threw out. Well, I'm sure they had it in committee for a few months before they decided. Yeah, 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 and that's what they ended up with. Well, that's that's, by that's committee. exactly right. Well, it's like my favorite old joke is said that uh, the platypus is a elephant designed by committee. Oh, okay. Yes, it would be. <laughs> Absolutely useless. So Arthur, being bored, is trying to teach one of the prehistoric men how to play Scrabble and make him evolve. And he mentions the letter Q and the triple word score. Do you think he did the exquisite play again like he did with Trillian? No doubt. (laughs) What are the odds? Well, in this show, the odds are always with you. (laughs) That's right. But I do like that uh, part about the Q where he gets angry at the at the last and he throws the letter q out into the privet bush that well, i can't remember right it scares a rabbit scares a rabbit. rabbit gets eaten by a fox and the fox dies pollutes a pool of water which later yes uh, ford's girlfriend yeah drinks Joe from ford's a girlfriend. pool of water and then she <laughs> yes. dies right <laughs> but all those people what's the lesson that can be learned oh yes the lesson that can be learned Never throw a letter Q into a privet bush. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but we get to see all those characters again. The rabbit and the, yeah. the fox. <laughs> mm-hmm. Here's something that I know what he was trying to do, but I'm not really happy about the way he chose to do it. There might be a way of bringing the unconscious pattern in his brain forward introducing some random element that can be shaped by that pattern like pulling scrabble letters out of a bag blindfolded Mm -hmm. when he picked up the s and the h and he set them down by the i and the t his subconscious was used his eyes could see the letters but he was not deliberately choosing the letters correct his conscious mind was elsewhere And Mm -hmm. that allowed his subconscious to take over. Right. Pulling letters out of a bag blindfolded may be a way to tap into the computer matrix, but it is not through Arthur's subconscious because it's unconscious. There's nothing in his subconscious that knows where the letters are. (laughs) It would be totally random. If they were all up and he was doing something, but his peripheral vision could see letters... That would be one thing, but I don't like that he attributes it to his subconscious mind when it's a blind pull out of a bag. Mm, okay, I, I, I can see that. All right, so I'll give them one little caveat that might change that just slightly. Remember, the tiles are made by Arthur and the letters are scratched out onto little pieces of rock. So they're not uniform. A- and they could be felt by his fingers. I'll give you that. I will say that if he handmade the Scrabble tiles, everyone is going to be different. If he scratched the name, his subconscious would know every tile and every letter, and there's no way his conscious mind could ever pull out that information. Right. So I will take that as a as a possibility, because it was really bugging me that they kept saying his subconscious mind. Right. And he's doing a blind bag pull. Yeah, you're, you're right. But that makes sense. That That's a good observation. I know we're going to get into this at some point in the future, because we've had 
it on the list of things we're going to talk about. But and I, and I don't even know for a fact that at this moment we're being given an answer here. But when they okay. come out of what do you get when you multiply six by nine, it's an interesting response, and it seems to have some potential parallels. But I don't know. Okay. Because like he said in the beginning, if you know the answer and the question at the same time, the universe will invert himself. <laughs> there is a theory that if anybody ever finds out what the universe is for, it will cease to exist and be replaced by something more bizarrely inexplicable. Right. Yes. I kind of like, and I we know we've repeated this number of times in Adams's approach to humor, the the parallel nature of the things that he does. So right here at the end of the book, I'm not convinced that what we're given from this tile poll is the brainwave pattern response and the intended question for the answer that we already know as 42. Right. I I, I just I I have a little bit of trouble with that. You know, it it. But I know we're going to have a big discussion later on about the answer, and therefore we're going to talk about the question, and uh, we're going to have Correct. other discussions where we kind of define what those things mean. Here at the end, I think we're just playing back to what Adams has described in the beginning, that should he have been able to pull out the actual answer, then he may have caused this universe to disappear <laughs> and be replaced by something even True. more bizarre yeah. and inexplicable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if if the actual answer was pulled out, then poof, it's gone. <laughs> but and and on top of that, we've already defined that. And you've talked about it before that because we know Golgofrinchians or Frinchians rather are on the planet and replace the indigenous people, that the process of getting the correct answer has been messed up so we're not even sure yes. that the brain pattern that marvin sees in arthur's brain is the actual answer right i keep saying answer but <laughs> me question yeah i like that after they pulled out the question of what do you get when you multiply six by nine they go into fits of laughter and two girls, Agda and Mela, mm -hmm. come upon them and they think they're writhing in pain, but then they discover that they're just laughing. Yes, I love that. And that's an excellent sequence. And when I read this part of the book and I got to the end and he, you know, Arthur's talking to Mela that Mela's so glad that she doesn't have to be looking at moodily lit tubes of toothpaste <laughs> because, of course, right. she was a... Uh, uh, a marketing executive, I think is what her previous... She was in advertising. In advertising, right, which is, again, another parallel because we learned from the very first book in the very beginning, most of Arthur's friends were in advertising. Correct. So it's funny and it's, and it's lovely the way they kind of wrap it up. And I almost feel like when I get to the end of this book, unlike the last book, it feels like an end. Right. And here's something I wanted to toss in there. I don't think that Mela truly belonged on the Bee Ark. No, no, you're right. Even though she was in advertising, she didn't like her job. That's correct. <laughs> so she belonged somewhere else, and she may not have actually been a useless bloody loony. <laughs> and from everything that we have heard her say in this book, 
leads me to believe that she didn't belong on the BR. She just ended up there by circumstance. <laughs> yep, we all have jobs we just go to every day. <laughs> yeah. And then, just to make sure that it was mentioned, Arthur explains to Mella about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and how he threw it into the river because he didn't think he'd be needing it anymore. <laughs> Again, and that's kind of a satisfying ending, isn't it? I think it is, yes. But it's the, how can there be another book? Because <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, and we don't. I don't know, I haven't researched it. Did he assume that there was going to be another book? or did? Like any author, I think he would just agree to do as many books as they would let him write. I don't know if the trilogy was so commonplace back then, though. Like right, right. now, you don't you don't write a book. You write a trilogy. It's just right. you don't start with one. <laughs> it's automatically a series. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, after our episode on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, we did a bonus episode where we tried to answer as many of the questions that I had after reading it. Some were sort of serious, but most were just for fun. So we plan to do the question and answer bonus episode after every book. So I'm interested in hearing some of the questions you all have after reading the books. So if you have a question about any of the books, email or message me and I'll include it in the appropriate podcast bonus episode. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to our next full episode where we will be discussing the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie that was released in 2005. So, say goodbye, Brian. All right, Jeff. It's so hard to say goodbye. Was that a song? But a sweet goodbye to you all. <laughs> goodbye. No, I'll sing a song next time, if that's good to you. That'll be great. I'll hold you to it. All right. A song from the movie. Good night. Thank you for listening to Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea. Look for us the first Thursday of every month for a full episode. We will also release a bonus episode later in the month. A very special thanks goes out to Luke, Max, Greg, and Tim Lesnick for arranging and performing our opening theme. We would also like to thank our talented friends and family for their voice work on our introductions and commercials. For this episode, a special thank you to Carly Rounds for portraying two-thirds of Eccentrica Golumbits for our opening. For this episode, special thanks goes out to Dr. Julie Lesnick for our commercial. We would also like to thank Kelly Lesnick for doing our summary. Visit our website at digitalwatchesareaprettyneatidea.buzzsprout.com where you can find links to all my Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy-inspired t-shirt designs. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube as Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea, on Instagram as Watches Idea Podcast, and on Twitter at Watches Idea. If you'd like to contact us, our email is digitalwatchespodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>